Hi, I'm Barry Hamaguchi. And I'm Jason Marcos. This is Flop Redeemer, the weekly podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why you should give these songs a second chance. Swedish band The Cardigans scored a number two on the Billboard music charts with 1996's Love Fool, an infectious pop tune about unrequited love, successfully bringing their unique brand of vintage-inspired lounge pop to the American mainstream. After a brief hiatus, the band re-emerged in the U.S. in 2004 with a new sound and a new album, Long Gone Before Daylight, featuring the single For What It's Worth. Hello. Hi. Uh, we're here. We're queer. Are you cold? We're ready to talk about Swedish pop stars. Um, It is warming up. It, it was, I mean... It was freezing cold this morning, meaning that it was about 55, yeah, 55 degrees. degrees. <laughs> so I'm, you know, festooned in my um, winter garb. Mm. I know. I have my pashmina. As is, as is my want during the chilly December months here in Los Angeles, California. During the day, I keep turning the heat up and up and up. Mm. And it's suddenly like, I'll be like 70, 74 degrees is not warm enough for me anymore. Wait, if that's turning it up and up and up, what was it at before? I mean, our nest, because it wants to be really smart and eco-conscious, it starts out the day, like we'll wake up and it'll have auto reset to 58. Holy shit. That's too cold in the house. I mean, it's, you know, it, but it's fine when you're sleeping. And then, or I'll, sometimes I'll do it from my phone because it's too cold to get out of bed. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'll, you know, I'll, I'll hit the nest with my phone and be mm-hmm. like, hey, like, I want it to be like 68 is a good starting temperature yeah, for yeah. the morning. Can't you, can't you create it, a routine for that with the nest? Isn't that like the point? All attempts to do that have failed. It's oh. supposed to just know. It's supposed to just know what I want it to do and it's supposed mm-hmm. to adapt over time. Mm-hmm. I have gone in and manually changed the settings, but I don't know. I'm, I, I don't ever want it to just start running mm. by itself, I guess. Oh. I mean, ours is set to like 72. Okay. So it's like whether, well, in the in the summertime, we, we raise it a little bit because it doesn't need to be that cold. But 72, I think generally, because I think 68, like my feet, if it's 68, like my feet never get warm and like my hands okay. never get warm. Like, So you have a consistent heating and cooling temperature. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I find that like in the summer months, it doesn't have to be that cool before i feel cool Mm. and in the winter months it doesn't have to be that hot before i feel yeah warm i just want to feel i want it to feel comfortable but so so the thing is is we have two stories and Mm. so the upstairs will be totally fine like i'll get out of bed and i'm like you know it's 71 72 degrees whatever the you know however it is and i'm like i can walk i don't have to put a bundle up to go to the bathroom or whatever you know i'm not freezing when i'm standing there like brushing my teeth but when I descend the stairs to my office to, like, start work, to report this podcast, whatever, like, it is, you know, obviously hot air rises. So <laughs> so upstairs where our bedroom is, is, like, is warmer, is that is that temperature, and downstairs where all the cold air has gone. So, like, yeah. I find, like, my feet are always cold. And because we have vents that are at the top of the walls, they're not at the bottom, um, you know, it's harder, you know, just by nature of it, it's harder to, to warm downstairs. So, um, but you know, that's why I'm wearing essentially a, a shawl down here, just so I'm not running the ace or running the heater constantly. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for our house, I mean, we have like, we have a single story house. It's essentially one giant room. 
And nonetheless, I question the number that the thermostat reads sometimes, just because <laughs> I think that the distribution of vents and maybe the way the ductwork is going, it like doesn't evenly heat or cool the house. So sometimes it'll say it's like 72 in the house, but I'll be like in the office and I'm like, it's not 72 degrees in here. Like, yeah, I need to turn it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And just that that sensation of I like the sensation of warmth of actively having the heat on. Oh, like hot air blowing oh, in the oh. house because the second that it reaches the target temperature and it turns off, I'm almost immediately cold. Mm. Um, so, but that yeah. being said, like you know, in the in the winter we try to do like 68 degrees for heat, and then in the summer we'll do like 78 for cooling. Yeah, um, and that's usually enough, honestly. Like. You know, because especially like if we're going in and out of the house, mm -hmm. you know, if we go out of the house and it's like 111 outside and it's 78 in our house, our house feels very cool. Yeah. And yeah. if I'm outside and it's like 55 and it's 70 or 68 inside the house, it feels very, very warm. But yeah. it's just like when we're when we're at home working all day, it just gets very like, yeah, the air gets stagnant. I get stagnant. Well, one you know? of the things that's really helped us here is we have a couple ceiling fans which mm. just, I mean, even just the movement of air, whether or not, you know, because we were able to raise the thermostat, um, you know, in the summertime, just because we had moving air. So the sensation of it being cooler was fine. You know, as long as the air is moving, we felt fine. But, you know, yeah. I, I'm constantly just like, oh, God, like, what's the energy consumption? How are we, you know? So I try to bundle up. Like, I've got thermal yeah. socks on. It's my extremities get cold. And so once my mm -hmm. toes are cold, like, then I, I have yeah. a hard time getting warm. So, especially get that blood circulation up. I know. Oh, that I just realized as I verbalized, I sound like a terrible. Like, <laughs> do I have problems? I don't think so. I got circulation going. Oh God. Okay. Anyway, so today I'm talking about a cardigan song, and this this topic arose from a conversation that we were having after last week's episode one of our episodes you were commenting on the interesting trajectory of my musical taste throughout my life right mm -hmm. that like i talked about like being a young kid into paula abdul being like a teenager that's into alternative rock and then fully like college and beyond like entering my like britney spears era your pop you know your pop princess era yeah and we've been i think that in the process of doing this podcast we've been getting a kind of a macro view not only of like music trends throughout the decades that we've been alive, but also like our own musical tastes or like what was happening with us in terms of like, oh yeah, why did I like this at that time? Or like, you know, what were the factors in my own life that like really had this song like embedded deep within mm -hmm. my innermost soul parts, right? <laughs> um, it touched you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the more that we've been doing this, the more that we've been talking about this, um, none of it feels discontinuous to me. Is that the second time I've used the word discontinuous? Is that a word? I mean, it is, right? Yes. I, I don't know if it... Uh, yes, Continuous, it is the, discontinuous. Yeah, 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 anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, not, you know, it all feel It all has continuity to me. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking about that, that back and forth between pop alternative to pop, one band that kind of came to mind for me in my own personal musical my own personal musical tastes was the cardigans because, you know, we've talked about like what was happening to music throughout the nineties 
when I talked about Veruca Salt, I was talking about what kind of a mixed bag of things, mm-hmm. uh, quote unquote, alternative music became as the 90s progressed in that, you know, it, it became a catch all for a bunch of music that just didn't fit into any of the other genres. And so you were getting kind of like traditional like grunge music, but you were also getting like Brit rock. And then you might be getting like Brit pop. You might be getting trip hop. You might be getting pure electronica. You'd be getting drum and bass. Like you'd mm-hmm. be getting a ton of musical influences. And I think that the things that drew me into alternative music were definitely more of like the alternative bands that pursued pop melodies. And then once those musical influences started to, di- to diverge later in the 90s, I followed those acts that were still making pop pop mm. melodies mm-hmm. straight out into back into pop music when you get like Spice Girls and Britney Spears. And I think the Cardigans are a good illustration of that because they were making music that was not really typical of alternative music at the time. To listen back to it now, it's hard to understand how that music really fit into the big picture of alternative music, especially when you get to like the song Loveful, which I think is like their one big hit in the United States, you know? I think that for a lot of music consumers, um, the Cardigans are a one-hit wonder in the United States. You know? I mean, Love Fool, I think, absolutely is. Because that was, yeah, that was on the soundtrack, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, it was on the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. Because I asked Davey, I was like, how many Cardigan songs can you name? And he could only name that one. Well, yeah, and it was really funny. So, to that point, it, when you, when you said you were talking about the Cardigans, this is embarrassing for me. Because I was like, oh, yeah, 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 I know the Cardigans. Um, You know, a friend of mine, you know, was really into them when we were in seventh grade. And I, you know, because I had only really ever listened to either just like pop or, you know, R&B soul, like through my family. I felt very, this was like opening a new channel to me. Um, Realized today that while, yes, I do know the Cardigans, the band I was thinking of was the Cranberries. (laughs) Oh Jesus! Because I was like, oh yeah, they're Irish, and um, <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh shit! Like I was well, like, they obviously both start with C. they both start with C. They were kind of active around similar times, but not. I mean, I I know who they are for sure, yeah. but just like they how kind can of you forget blended. our friend Chris's iconic cover of Love Fool? I was just gonna say it's still saved on my computer, Chris, <laughs> and it will be deployed. That is a threat. My computer as well. Um, you can you'll have to kill us both yeah (laughs) this is back in the day by the way when we used to go to karaoke on the weekends between 1 and 3 p.m on Sotel Boulevard because it was cheap and then at some point we realized that the the karaoke machines at uh, UU had a tape recorder in it and one of our friends would bring a cassette tape one of our friends it was me it was me no, but I thought it was Eric. No, it was me. Eric digitized it all, though. Yes, he did. Eric is the reason we have MP3s of these things. But it was me. I was like, I must preserve this for future <laughs> generations. And decades later, all we have is Chris singing Love Fool. Oh, no. that's Maybe that's all oh, you have. Oh, I you have, have the full catalog? I only have Chris <laughs> singing Love Fool. I think I deleted I, You know, I mean, it was because, you know... Famously, Mary J. Blige recorded her demo in a karaoke booth in a mall. And uh, I had uh, dreams of us all, you know, well, that's never going to happen for us if no one has recorded it. So 
that's why we would record them. But yes, so so between the cardigans and the cranberries, I, I mean, it's like obviously yes. And I was like different people, yeah. And Although, I but I do I do like the cardigans. And I will say that in that I I I would identify the cardigans as my pathway out of alternative music. The cranberries were my pathway in. Yeah, and that I was gonna say kind of. Not that I, not that the cardigans led me out of it, but the cranberries definitely, like I was saying, were my path in. I had never heard like someone like mm-hmm. Loris Riordan's voice, uh, you know, and and that kind of music. It wasn't quite rock. It yeah. wasn't super poppy, and so th- I think that's why it's sort of stuck in my mind. And I, the, I, yeah, the audacity of the cranberries and the one minute and twenty seconds of just acapella yodeling. At the end of the album version of Dreams, yeah, is amazing. And then they always they always faded it out on the radio. They're like, okay, this is where they just start yodeling for a minute and twenty. Like, let's just <laughs> cut this song. <laughs> well, I saw a meme the other day about like shout out if you remember if you're old enough to remember when the radio would cut out whenever the ad libs started. <laughs> and I was like, ah, that always made me mad because like Mariah's ad libs at the end would just get cut out. Any of them. <sighs> Um, but no, you know, the, the the other song from the Cardigans that I do know is my favorite game. Okay, yes. So I, I do, you know, Gran Turismo I'm more familiar with. And then that album. Uh, other than that, I That's didn't That's so really interesting. Gran Turismo is like my least favorite. Well, I think. I think it was just because that was coming after Love Fool. It was the next mm-hmm. one or the, the album that had Love Fool on it. And, um, and I think it was, I think Gran Turismo was probably their the closest they got to becoming purely a mainstream pop band. And that's why like if they had, I know it, you know, if they had continued on, I think that like they, they would have emerged into the two thousands as like a pop band played on pop radio, mm-hmm. you know, alongside Britney Spears, the spice girls, all that stuff, you know, but as we'll find out, like there was a, there was, there was a pause after Gran Turismo mm, that, yeah resulted in a little bit of a a change um then let's get into it so anyway um that's kind of the background of i think why i wanted to talk about this okay it's a little bit of a macro view it's a pullback on like how i think music carried me from like the early 90s and then to the late 90s into the 2000s to to re-articulate your point again it's just sometimes you know yes like alternative how did alternative berry become pop princess berry and 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 to draw the through line to be like oh maybe that i can see why like they're the same thing the things you know and i think that'll be interesting to talk about i think oh the other thing and i think what triggered this conversation last week when we were talking about it kind of after hours or whatever you kind of clocked me for really being into the treble Ah. that i shy away from bass Mm -hmm. and when we were talking about the evolution of hip hop R&B in the 90s and how it starts out the decade with New Jack Swing and then moves into like, you know, 808s and whatnot in the late 90s. That's, an, I think that's another precursor to driving me out of like hip hop R&B music and more mm-hmm. into alternative music. Mm-hmm. At the time when hip hop R&B was largely comprising pop music and then alternative music was the other option and then even with the types of alternative music that i was into none of it being heavily bass driven Mm -hmm. 
And that makes the perfect segue, I think, into a lot of the pop bubblegum pop music that comes out in the nineties. It's very late. It's very easy on the ears. I'm not someone that needs to have like my innards shaken. Well, and I think it also, <laughs> it, it, you know, you take that, you, you tend to like more European pop. Yeah. Right. Than than I do. But I think if you draw that through line between some of the European indie bands to European pop bands, which might have had more of an indie rock feel in the mid nineties to now, I think it just, it makes perfect sense. And I think too, there's like, you know, to bring that European aspect of it up, it's like, there is something about like Swedish pop music Mm -hmm. in that, like, Oh God, Ace of Bass, Ace of (sighs) Bass, huge from Sweden in the early to mid nineties. And then you take that, the, the DNA of Swedish pop music the Cardians have that inherently in their music. And then when you move into Britney Spears and all of the pop stuff that was coming up, that was all from Max Martin, mm-hmm. also from Sweden. And mm-hmm. there's just this like, you know, I think it's 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 often noted that Max Martin and Swedish pop music in general, there's like a, there's something to the musical structure of it that is infectious, that you just identify as pop music. Yeah. So all that to say that like, Today's episode is about the Cardigans. Um, I'm talking about uh, one of their later songs, one of their lesser known songs from one of their less successful albums because, well, because this is the, this is the podcast <laughs> Flop Redeemer and this is what we do. I was going to say. <laughs> so let's take a break. Um, when we get back, I will dive in. I was going to say like, that's what I do. That's what I live for. We forgot to mention our website. Does anyone even look at our website? I have not updated our website in a couple weeks. So maybe we should stop talking about it because if people go there, it's out of date. Well, maybe by the time this airs, I'll have fully backlog, uh, gotten over my backlog and updated it. But um, you I mean, can email us at flopperdeemer at gmail.com. I mean, you successfully talked about our website without actually telling people what our website is. So I think you mission accomplished. Uh, flopperdeemer.com. <laughs> In, in my grand tradition of bringing something up to not talk about it, I have talked about it. Just like I will not talk about how unprepared I am today, and I will not talk about how over time we are going. Already. Well, and 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 you will not talk about a cardigan song that anybody knows. No, no one knows this song. Okay, so today I'm talking about the song "For What It's Worth" by the Cardigans. This was the lead single from their fifth studio album, which is 2003-2004's Long Gone Before Daylight. It was released internationally before it was released here in the United States. Uh, This song never charted in the U.S., but it peaked at number eight in their native Sweden. Uh, It was their first single following a three-year hiatus and represented a huge change to the band's sound, yielding what I think is one of their best songs to date. I think that the cardigans in the United States are largely considered a one hit wonder. Everyone knows the song love fool. Maybe, you know, my favorite game, maybe, you know, erase rewind. Maybe, you know, carnival, maybe, you know, sick and tired. If you know all those songs actually like, then you're probably a cardigans fan. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> if you know their entire discography, if you know their entire discography, you're probably a fan. Um, Is your name Barry? 
but interestingly, I mean, Love Fool for me is one of my least favorite songs of theirs. It, it it was a turn away from I think what made them really special to me early in the '90s, and um, they continued to evolve though after this I think, and they continued to make really great music that I think always captured this dichotomy between Nina Persons like kind of angelic, sweet, saccharine vocals with lyrics that were they were bummers these songs are bummers mm. like when you listen to them they're all about unrequited love yeah. or broken relationships or just shitty things that happen when you're when you're not in love anymore even though they're all very poppy and very happy sounding mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. most part so the cardigans they are a swedish rock band they were formed in sweden in 1992 by guitarist Peter Svensson, bassist Magnus Svenningsen, drummer Bengt Lagerberg, keyboardist Lars Olaf Johansson, and lead singer Nina Persson. Svensson and Svenningsen, the guitarist, lead guitarist and the bassist, they were originally heavy metal musicians. Magnus. Because when you look up, when you read about the Cardigans, there's always this reference to how there's like a heavy metal influence to their music. And I would say that from the outside that can be very hard to discern you know they do make a point of covering different heavy metal songs throughout their their discography Mm -hmm. but beyond that i don't know if that influence really carries through musically in terms of like the instrumentation or anything like that but they start out as heavy metal musicians but when they team up with the with their bandmates they decide to start exploring a decidedly non-heavy metal sound Early points of reference that the band cites for their musical influences when they formed the Cardigans are bands like the Smiths and the Sundays. Okay. That makes so sense. they were they were going after these kind of uh melodic pop rock bands. And if you don't have some standout tracks for either of those bands, the, the songs that I like the the songs that I like by the Smiths and the Sundays, I like Big Mouth Strikes Again by the the Smiths, mm. one of my favorite Smith songs. And um, the Sundays did a cover of the Rolling Stones song "Wild Horses" that I also think is yes. a very excellent, yes. excellent song. I was I was trying to I was like, why do I know the Sundays? I loved that song. They also did that like uh, here's here's where the story ends. I don't know that song. If they didn't play it on the radio, then I didn't know it. Um, for me, it's funny. Um, side story about uh, the Sundays is that um, back when I was using Pandora. And you would kind of input an artist or a song, right? And then Pandora would come up with a playlist. And then as your playlist was playing, you could say like, I do like this song. I don't like this song. I do like this song. I don't like the song, you know? And it would kind of refine based on what you were doing. At some point, I was so nitpicky about what Pandora was giving to me that all it would play for me was the Sundays and Sixpence None the Richer. Oh my God. (laughs) I had refined my entire musical taste down to the Sundays and Sixpence None the Richer which are actually two bands that I would not identify as favorites of mine. But just like sonically, I guess that's where my brain was subconsciously heading. Yeah. So they're so they're doing this non-heavy metal thing. They're taking these influences from melodic pop acts. Peter Svensson had a background from um, his time in college of, uh, of jazz. So he was actually familiar with jazz harmony and theory, and they used that bassist along with these pop melodic influences to develop this kind of unique sound that the cardigans would be 
become known for. This kind of jazzy, loungy, vintage-inspired pop that they debuted with. And that, I think, paired with Nina Persson's voice, which is very sweet, uh, very angelic. I think one of some of the reviews that talk about the cardigans early on, they refer to her voice as being confection-like. You know, it becomes part of that signature sound of the cardigans. So the band actually debuts in 1994 with the album Emmerdale. And that album was never officially released in the United States. But I remember in like 94, maybe 93... I remember hearing a couple of songs from this album on on um, the alternative radio station in San Francisco. Um, and those songs were Sick and Tired and Rise and Shine. And those got a decent amount of college radio and alternative radio play. And that resulted in them being signed to Minty Fresh Records in 1995. And Minty Fresh Records was also the record label that signed Veruca Salt here in the United States in uh. 1994. Okay. So, you know, they're kind of calling all of these acts from, um, you know, rock club scenes or college radio scenes that are starting to bubble up. And so um, Minty Fresh takes a chance on the Cardigans and the Cardigans make their like official U.S. debut in 1995 with the album Life. And one thing that I didn't know at the time, because at the time we were hearing the songs um sick and tired and rise and shine on the radio. And then suddenly they had this new song called carnival when the album life came out in the United States, since the album Emmerdale had never come out here, they decided to just kind of smush up the track listings between those two albums. They removed some songs from the global release of life and then just smushed in like the singles from Emmerdale on it. So the version that we got here in the United States was actually not like the official version of the album. And I know like a lot of fans were really not happy about that because we were essentially like, I think we missed out on like two or three cardigan songs by not getting that official version. Well, it's Um, funny because looking at the track listing, I knew the song carnival. It's one of those songs that got played in places and it has, I think it really solidified the, the 60s and 70s kind of loungy vibe for them. Whereas I think that Sick and Tired and Rise and Shine um, from Emmerdale had more of like a folksy pop vibe to it. It still had like a a vintage feel to it, but it was a little more folksy. It's something that I thought of as more connected to like Frente. Do you remember like Frente had that uh, like acoustic guitar cover of uh, Bizarre Love Triangle? by new order i would probably might know be before your time it. this would have yeah. been like i think th- i think that was like 91 92 oh yeah that that's definitely that before song. my time beautiful cover of bizarre love triangle amazing perfect lovely um but that's that's kind of the connective tissue i see to like emmerdale okay and when they debut here with life the song carnival it has like a it has like an organ playing in the background and then it goes straight into this very like it's it's a jazzy loungy groove to it. Well, you know? and, and, and to me, uh, you know, experiencing it at the time, it was distinctly European, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Because like that is not an American sensibility necessarily, musical sensibility, especially in the nineties, like that. Mm-hmm. Like because because I think you mentioned Ace of Bass. Like there's just something so like off kilter about it. I I feel like, and then you get to you know you get to like Love Fool even, and it's 
again, it it doesn't sound like anything an American would come up with. And if you yeah. think about Romeo and Juliet, Boslerman's Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes, etc., it was already so heightened that it sort of made sense. It it was sort of ridiculous in its musicality, I guess, just because it didn't sound like anything else. And I think that's that's the interesting thing about the cardigans yeah. is like that you know. Yeah, just for lack of a different. better word, like I think that the cardigans were unabashedly cute hmm. in a time when that wasn't a thing. Yeah, you know? it's interesting, that and you I think say they that. Yeah. they did it in a way that somehow they were able to be considered like alternative rock artists. Versus, like when I think about other acts that did something that seemed excessively cute, seemingly for novelty. Yeah you get relegated to like a garbage pop pile of like a bar- Barbie girl. Oh, like aqua. Was that aqua? Also distinctly European. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, to, to, to walk that line of saying like, Oh, this is cutesy and it's saccharine, but it's self-aware and it's ironic. Kind of what I, which is what I think that the cardigans always really had going for them was that they would, as a counterpoint to her voice and to this music that they were creating, their songs are always a little bit fucked up. Yeah. It's, you know, it's never, it's not never a happy sounding love song about happy love. It's a happy sounding love song about unrequited love or lost love or failed love. Yeah. Which is what I think works for them. Critically speaking. Yeah. There's like a, um, well, like to your point about it being cute, I was just listening to um, my favorite game again, and there's like a there's an edge, and maybe that's where that's where the the heavy metal sort of sensibility comes in. Mm-hmm. That guitar line and the driving bass, it's less cute, right? Like it's it it doesn't it's it's less like a novelty, right? Like it it's yeah it it's there's a seriousness to it, even though you know, the lyrics and sort of the, the way it's sort of done. And I think that was also, I mean, later on, I think that that's also influenced by the way that alternative music is changing. And, um, you know, when they did Gran Turismo, they worked on that separately from their longtime producing partner. Mm. When they did Gran Turismo, that was a departure from their longtime producer, um, Torre Johansson. Mm. And in interviews uh, around the time that the Cardigans were debuting in the United States, Peter Svensson actually talks about working with Tori Johansson and how um, one thing that really influenced their sound was that they would go to his studio and he would have these vintage vibraphones and all of this like quote unquote real studio equipment Mm -hmm. that helped them to form that sound. Mm. And by the time you get into 98, when Gran Turismo comes out, they they weren't work they didn't work with him on that particular album and then I think that that had uh, an effect on the overall sound, but we're skipping ahead a little bit. So okay, sorry, 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 sorry. No, 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 it's okay, it's okay. So the album Life comes out. I remember when I purchased the album Life, perhaps reinforcing that that too sweet image of theirs. Nina Person is on the cover of the Life album. Yeah, in like a, a very like. 1960s Sonia Henny figure skater outfit. And I remember I, I needed to look for this. I have the album 
somewhere in this house. But I remember buying this CD as like a 15 year old. And then you um, unfold the liner notes and fully like the other guys in the band are all dressed up in different like athlete out like vintage athlete outfits and that's one of those like that that like i knew i was gay when kind of <laughs> moments uh, is like the drummer of the band in like a uh, like a vintage like gymnast singlet <laughs> oh wait yeah anyway anyway because like, the, the funny thing too is that like nina person is this like very uh lithe blonde nordic are they nordic in sweden are yeah. they uh, Scandinavian? Yeah. Whoa. Okay, no. Vikings. Oh. They're Vikings. Yeah. But she's very blonde, very very slim, you know, very like alabaster statuesque face. And then the dudes are like, they're kind of Viking looking dudes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But guys, you can definitely see like, oh, they would have been in a heavy metal band uh-huh. <laughs> if they weren't in the cardigans. Yeah. Well, and especially um, too, as they've aged, you know, like still good looking, but with that piercing like scandinavian piercing eyes heavy brow ridge like all those things except for the keyboardist the keyboardist had more of like the um like the like the hotel lobby desk clerk in a procedural crime drama that ends up being the murderer (laughs) yes yes it's the the eyes the keyboardist has that vibe yeah 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 something very uh peter laurie almost no but not that's an insult (laughs) (laughs) sorry halfway a quarter of the way to peter laurie anyway um, the album Life, 1995, I knew I was gay when, um, oh, standout track on this album for me is the song Fine. Oh, if you, okay. if you, if you listen to one song on this album, the song is fine. It's like track eight or nine, depending on which release you're listening to. Fantastic. Chef's Kiss song. It, I think it hedges its bets between being too loungy, too poppy and too rocky. Like it, it's somewhere, it's somewhere in the middle there. And then I, 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 I like the lyrical content of it too. I don't know. I don't know why. Then we get to the point where I think most people kind of enter the cardigan story, which is their breakout success with the album first band on the moon and the song love fool. So this was released in 1996. I was looking back at a bunch of old billboard magazine issues because you can actually search for them on Google books. It's really interesting to read all of the old trade articles that people were writing at the time. Oh, interesting. But people were really excited about the cardigans. Like there had been some major college radio success with life that had been building since Emmerdale. And then there was, there was definitely a music industry acknowledgement. Like the cardigans have a place like there, there is something here that is very marketable to United States audience. And so leading up to the release of first band on the moon and the single love fool, they actually, they, they got signed to a major label. They got signed to Mercury off of Minty Fresh and their promotions that they're lining up for this album are pretty big. So they get a, they get a promotion with an up and coming retailer called urban outfitters, which at the time had Mm. 25 stores in the United States. Um, The song loveful was going to be played in store and they were going to be doing promotional giveaways of cassette singles with purchase at the stores. Mm. Uh, The song loveful was also licensed to be played in store at Gap and Banana Republic stores nationwide, mm. which I know you have feelings about the songs that were played in the Gap, having being a Gap alum alumnus yourself. It it um, yeah it 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 completely. I mean, both good ways and bad. Like I never want to hear that stupid Paul McCartney Christmas song. <laughs> Was that uh, simply having a wonderful Christmas time? I will shoot that song. Um, but it also introduced me to like. 
standards, like Ella Fitzgerald, yeah. certain Ella Fitzgerald songs, because they would play that in the lingerie section. Yeah, uh, I thought it was always. I mean, as a as only a, like a customer of the Gap, it was always interesting for me to walk into a Gap and then hear what was playing because I feel like they would license kind of like up and comer tomorrow's hits kind of songs. Like mm-hmm. they would be, re- they would get like labels and stuff reaching out to them with like, this is yeah. going to be big next year. We want you to play this in store. Um, I just never thought about it until I met you and then you <laughs> having worked at the gap about being like, you're there for like whatever, like an eight plus hour shift. And you're hearing maybe what, like a two hour loop of songs. <laughs> I think it was like three. I, no, it was longer than that. But like okay. over the course of the week, you know, it would be interminable. Right. <laughs> and, and especially at Christmas time, you know, during the holidays, you know, it, but, you know, it, it was a, I mean, it was great. I, you know, at one point I wanted to try and find a job um, as like for the company that put those together. Cause I thought this was before streaming music and this is, you know, before, you know, music had really hit the internet. So yeah, the idea that you could like curate, like just listen to music and curate songs that represented a brand's customers or the brand itself was fascinating to me. And I actually looked up the company and they were like in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. And I was like, oh, you really? know what? Never mind. No. Uh, yeah. So that, that's interesting. That Cause um, dream died. Um, John, mm-hmm. he had a friend back in the day that used to work in like music licensing, mm-hmm. but I think it was for tele. It was, it was for television. So it was based here in LA, you know, but um, I remember she was constantly on the lookout for like what people yeah. are listening to, yeah. like what's up and coming or the bands that they could look out for to potentially license for, you know, television shows on network TV uh, at the time. And I, yeah. it, 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 it can't be undercut how in, in a pre streaming media era, how essential those avenues were for getting your music heard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And also just, yeah, because you, you were so much less in control of what you experienced, right? Like yeah. what kind if of you weren't getting you on the radio, if you weren't on MTV, it's like you were licensed to commercials. You were on television shows. You were on movie soundtracks. And I remember movie soundtracks being, I remember them being pretty big in the nineties. And that kind of brings us into perhaps the biggest avenue for Loveful success, which was uh, the soundtrack to 1996's um, Romeo and Juliet directed by Baz Luhrmann starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, fully a movie I still have never seen to this day. What? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you want to talk about, like, realizing you were gay. Oh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio was the ideal. Was there, like, a a gay subtext to one of, like, the uh, his friend that, even in the Shakespeare version, like, his friend seems very possessive of him? possibly i don't remember that i just remember the way leonardo dicaprio was styled and shot in that movie oh, okay. and being like the 90s ideal right for like teen idleness and you know for the first time being like oh like the teen idol like you know just like being aware because mm-hmm. i was coming into my teenage years at the time so everyone wanted hair like that like everyone wanted to look like that you know just yeah, I, and I remember, I yeah. mean, because John Leguizamo was in it. I think he plays Mercutio. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean you tell you tell me, because I've never seen it. Oh. I do remember, though, that the soundtrack for this movie was, when it came out, it was almost impossible to find in stores. Mm. I don't remember what else is on it. Like, they would stock the shelves. They would stock the shelves with this soundtrack, and I would go to 
the record store down the street from my parents' house and it would be already sold out. Um, and it sold like, or it shipped three over 3 million copies in the United States of this soundtrack. Um, strangely, like I look at it now, I look at it now and I'm like, Oh, like there is this cardigan song, love fool. And then there was, um, a garbage song called number one crush. And those are really the only two songs that I personally ever loved i think there was like an everclear song and i've never been a fan well of everclear. and there's there's that desiree song i'm kissing you which oh desiree that's like your touch point well just because <laughs> how dare you <laughs> i don't like desiree don't you like that one there's there's that one desiree song that didn't beyonce do something with it yes okay not my favorite there's a connection but you know it's six degrees of beyonce <laughs> But I just remember that being like a moment, like just this this ballad, this like super sad ballad. It's not really R and B or anything. Like it's a, I don't know what you call it. It's Desiree. So, but yeah. also, and Prince had when doves cry. I think that might have been the first time that I heard when doves cry. Oh wow! Yeah, I, yeah. It know. was um, it was like a cultural. I feel like it was a cultural touch point, in the way that I feel like there were mu- movie soundtracks in the late 90s that started to become that like i remember the great expectations movie soundtrack being a big deal hmm. with that song life in mono by the band mono you remember that song <laughs> i i probably do like haunting electronica trip hop kind of song hmm. um i mean the 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 soundtracks that came out after that like drive me crazy uh 10 things i hate about you like all the iconic soundtracks I think that those also are instrumental in popifying alternative music. Mm. You know, you had letters to Cleo doing a lot of the soundtrack to 10 things I hate about you. And then ultimately Kay Hanley would do the soundtrack to Josie and the Pussycats. And it really made a space for like alternative rock music to not be that serious. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And definitely having it more could of be, that pop. It could be melodic. It could be poppy. It could be fun, mm-hmm. but it could mm-hmm. still like rock out. You yeah. Know? It didn't have to be it didn't yeah yeah exactly it didn't have to be super like depressing yeah so love fool on the heels of the romeo and juliet soundtrack becomes this huge hit in the united states it tops the hot 100 airplay charts or it peaks on the hot 100 airplay chart at number two and what i was reading about this was that because Love Fool was not released as an official single off of the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack, it was not eligible for placement on the main Hot 100 chart. And that's a rule that's changed since then. Oh. But at the time, like, it could have been on, it would have been on the Hot 100 had it been released officially as a single. However, it was not. So it was only counted as a number two on the airplay charts. You know, and this is in the time when. Uh, no Doubts Don't Speak was also topping the charts and Jewels You Were Meant For Me was also topping the charts. So these kind of v- female voices within alternative music um, also representing very different things. I think if you think about Love Fool, Don't Speak, and You Were Meant For Me all being essentially the same genre of music, it's very strange. Yeah. No, yeah. It's... I think that's yes. As we as we we get on, and the, that's the conundrum of alternative music. I think in general, yeah. So after the success of Love Fool, in interviews, Nina Person, or more so, more so recently after in the whole after the Cardigans era, Nina Person talks about how much the success of Love Fool freaked her out. Mm-hmm. That 
suddenly she was being looked at as like a pop star, a sex symbol. And none of those things necessarily lined up with who they, who they saw themselves to be, you know? Yeah. She's, she's in a rock band. She's, you know, and at the time, like, I think the band and Nina person herself, like there was a little bit of a snobbishness to them Mm. at the time. Like I, I, I was trying to find because they're not pop that they're not pop. They're not pop stars. They're, they're a band. They're a rock band. I was trying to find evidence of this moment that I recall, Mm -hmm. but I could not find evidence of it. So I'll talk about it through my recollection. My recollection is that Carson Daly had once identified the cardigans as the most unpleasant guests he'd ever had to interview on MTV. <laughs> you know, that he just characterized them as so aloof, so unfriendly, just so above it all and so over it. And, you know, that I, I thought it was interesting. And this is my recollection. I couldn't find the quote anywhere, but I remember him saying this, that they were so unpleasant to you that he would never, ever want them back. Huh. And I was watching other interviews of them at the time, and you definitely get that sense from them that at best, they're just very, very shy and very, very unsure of how to be pop stars. Or at worst, they have this great disdain for being considered pop stars Mm. and that they have like a little bit of uh, pent up hostility towards this like uh, dog and pony show that they're being forced to embark on i mean as part of the success you know as, we, as we've said multiple times on this podcast tale as old as time i mean and i think i think that in the long term for them that persona that they actually have in interviews it undercuts the spirit of what their music is on the surface a little bit it's like if you know if beyonce was out there doing i am sasha fierce and then was just a total rambling, nervous, you know. Surly mess. Yeah. In interviews, like you expect a certain media presence for Beyonce based on what her music is. And I think it's that way with a lot of pop stars, especially that if there is a disconnect between their media persona and the persona that they have in their music, it's easy to project a little bit of um, disingenuousness mm-hmm. upon that. And it makes the music feel maybe a little bit less special. Yeah. Like it's not, like it's not authentic to know that like, Oh, Nina, Nina person has this like great angelic, you know, what is it? Confection like voice. But then in person, she is just like stone faced and like, won't answer your questions. Yeah. But she seems a lot more friendly in later interviews. And I think it really was an aspect to how to deal with sudden stardom and being unprepared to deal with it. You know, she talks about that. She never felt as if she deserved the fame, you know, that people, people thought she was hot and she didn't think she was, you know? And so it's, um, this is when she starts to feel this discomfort with being a pop icon it is when she starts to identify that she is not really happy with being part of this band. Like she came into the cardigans, never having sung before. Like she was, she, she was, she was in art school 
studying visual art when her bandmates kind of plucked her into the band be like oh can you sing and it's like okay sure you know and then suddenly within a matter of four years she's a pop icon she's doing these worldwide tours for consecutive years she's getting exhausted it, it doesn't feel to her like this is who she is and so it's after uh first band on the moon that she first expresses that like she doesn't want to do this anymore mm. but the band is like no we have to keep going like th- they're just getting started they just got their big break and that's when we enter into gran turismo and we've we were talking about it earlier. This had the song, uh, my favorite game. Um, it also had a song called erase and rewind. That was all that is actually my favorite song of the whole album. And this album represented to me a shift towards a more electronic sound. Mm-hmm. I think that in the direction that I remember, uh, I remember alternative music heading, we were getting in the United States, a lot more exposure to things like trip hop drum and bass music like a lot of that stuff was starting to get played on alternative radio so i was getting more exposure to bands like massive attack or the sneaker pimps Mm -hmm. or more chiba yeah that kind of fused together pop music with these electronic beats and then a little bit of hip-hop influence into something that i still is also i think to your earlier point sort of european sounding yeah yeah, and it I mean, never yeah. it never really mainstreamed itself here, and it was very much an alternative music thing, um, but it was becoming more mainstream alternative, if that makes sense. And so these songs, like my favorite game and Erase Rewind, they have much more of an electronic feel to them. Gone are those vintage loungy references that they were making in earlier albums, but the pop melodies are still there. I think that the um, the kind of contrasting lyrics about of what their songs are about are still there. So thematically they're still there. And I think that Nina Pearson's voice really holds down what the sound is for the cardigans. Like when you hear a cardigan song. Well, and you know what else they left behind? Because while you've been talking, I've been doing a Google image search. Uh, they sadly left behind that singlet. Okay, I mean, and then they go, they, they go more, more rocky. Bank, banked Lagerberg. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's sad. That's the, probably the biggest loss on this album. That um, yeah, when they did when they did life, when they did that album with the Sonia Henny figure skating outfits, like they uh-huh. were all very clean cut. Uh huh. Yeah. And I, then it it, it 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 they get more and more uh, like shaggy, rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not in the, shaggy, in the subsequent just, years. Well, very nineties, um, like to your point, very nineties rock and roll style. But also, you know, it's interesting because I feel like kind of also starting to define it. If that makes sense, like I look at their look. And I'm like, I remember seeing that and that sort of being a template for how a band in that space would dress. Or yeah, look. I guess it's it's also one of those things that like I I remember like really not liking it at the time, like that change in image. But it's one of those things that has warmed up to me in retrospect. Like I look at it now and I'm like, oh, I remember when this debuted, like they all looked so scruffy and gross to me. But like now it's like, oh, that like that's that's like an aesthetically pleasing thing. Yeah. I also think it's interesting because, you know, listening to this as we're going through it and I know this isn't the album that you were going to talk about, but um, (laughs) we'll get there someday. I know. I know. But it's it's like I, I didn't I know I'm familiar with the songs. I it was almost too electronic for me, like because it was so different, right? Like I and I yeah. wasn't on the same journey. Like it doesn't. That. It doesn't have a place in music 
at the time. No. I, but I think that these musical influences that they're creating with Gran Turismo are pretty interesting given the current state of pop music and what the members of the Cardigans are doing now. Ah, which we will get to. We'll get, we'll get to that. No spoilers. <laughs> um, so uh, I never think of Gran Turismo as like a huge album for them. I think worldwide it was a big hit for them, but I don't think that it it had as much impact in the United States as Love Fool did. Um, the song My Favorite Game, it was included in the uh, soundtrack to the video game Gran Turismo 2. Um, I, I remember the Daria episode that My Favorite Game was on because... Back in the 90s, when the cartoon Daria aired on MTV, it was just like, that was a touchstone for like so much good music. Yeah. And when they, when they released Daria on DVD and then I think they released it to streaming services, they could not get all of the, um, the licensing rights back for the music that they use in the show. Daria suffers greatly (laughs) when they remove all of the like actual of the time music yeah, that yeah, they yeah. use in the show it's yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a great travesty of my time just hashtag justice for daria because i just want to see that show with these original songs back in place but well it's not the case that's the case with another with another tv show too where like they can't like the reason it's not around is because like yeah it was um oh well i mean no one knows this show because it was a flop but my uh wonderfalls okay yeah that's not what i was thinking about but oh Wonderfalls, which was by the creator of Pushing Daisies. Oh, I did like Pushing Daisies. It was about this girl. It was kind of like Joan of Arcadia, but very demented because it was this girl that worked in um, the Niagara Falls gift shop, and the figurines started talking to her. Oh, I remember. And she didn't know if she was like she didn't know if she was like losing her mind or if it was God talking to her. I remember. Awesome show. It only got one season. I think only two episodes aired. But when they released the DVD, they couldn't license all the music they had used in the show itself. So it's, uh, you know. Yeah. Generic stock audio track number three. Great show, Wonderfalls. Not what I'm talking well, about. Well, oh, oh, I was thinking of um of of Murphy Brown. Oh. Because they had a lot of like Motown oh, and stuff. Motown stuff. And so yeah. they can't license it. So that's why Murphy Brown is not streaming anywhere. Anyway, oh, okay. Sorry. I have not thought of Murphy Brown since it was on the air. Yeah. Um <laughs> uh oh, my favorite game. Yes. Interesting tidbit. I you know, my favorite game, I don't think it has as big of an impact as Love Fool did. Um, one reason could be because the video was actually banned. Oh, why? I don't remember this at the time. I was just reading about this this week. But the video for my favorite game, it was uh, directed by Jonas Ackerland, oh. who did um, the Ray of Light video for Madonna. He did Beautiful for Christina Aguilera. He did When Love Takes Over for Kelly Rowland. Huh. Oh, he did Haunted and Hold Up by Beyonce. And um, paparazzi and telephone with Lady Gaga. So, you know, yeah. a big time music video director. In the same year that he directed Ray of Light, he directed a video for my favorite game in which Nina Person, she picks up a boulder. She gets into a convertible. She puts the boulder down on the gas pedal of the convertible and then proceeds to just drive recklessly down a stretch of highway. Uh-huh. And in the process, she causes all these cars in oncoming traffic to flip over. This guy on a motorcycle wipes out at the very end. She, she stands up in the car, our arms out, you know, like, you know, like, like, uh, is it a, maybe it's a Christ reference. I don't know. Um, Her bandmates are in oncoming traffic in a van. They start freaking out. 
the two vehicles collide head on and there are different edits of this video that you can see. And Nina Pearson has talked about how they knew the video was going to be controversial. So they recorded several different endings for it to try and hedge their bets in the official director's cut. You see her body fling itself over the van kind of, like crumple in half and then fly onto the other side. And then the video ends with a shot of her dead body on the freeway. I was, and then there's, but then on the other extreme, there's a video, there's a version where you don't see what happens or there's a version where she walks away and she's fine. There's apparently, I was just looking, there's a version where she's decapitated by the windscreen of her car. And it ends with a shot of her head rolling around on the ground. (laughs) Oh, that one didn't make it to their YouTube channel. <laughs> oh, no, that one. Yeah. On their YouTube channel, you can see the version where her body flies. <sighs> and then, but nonetheless, this video was banned because she wasn't wearing her seatbelt. Because she was, uh, in all, across all versions, she was deemed to be driving rec- recklessly. <laughs> wow. So this video was not allowed to reach her eyes. Wow. Anyway. <laughs> That's okay. So after Gran Turismo, Nina Pearson has been kind of exhausted by the band, the pressures, uh, the constant touring. And so it's after Gran Turismo that she finally insists that she needs to take a break. And the band officially goes on hiatus after this point. They all pursue side projects. Nina Person does a side project called A Camp, which I guess for me personally, I just follow her around because she to me provides like the signature sound of the cardigans Mm. but in this time she does a side project called a camp there's a great song called song for the leftovers that really tides you over when you're missing the cardigans in the year 2004 i think no nope 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 2001 i think this came out so she's doing this side project called a camp um she also at this time uh she gets together with and she marries her husband who was I believe he was the guitarist for Shudder to Think. Hmm. Which if you're not familiar with Shudder to Think, I'm not super familiar with Shudder to Think. My my biggest exposure exposure to Shudder to Think is from the soundtrack to the movie Velvet Goldmine. Oh. With Christian Bale, Ewan McGregor, and Jonathan Rhys Myers. Mm-hmm. It's like a glam rock movie by um what's that guy's name? You know, for uh Todd. Nope. No, jo- yeah, Jonathan Rhys Meyer and Ewan McGregor. Yeah, no, but the the director was um oh Todd Haynes. Uh uh uh. Great movie. I need to revisit that movie. Great soundtrack, featuring Shudder to Think, which the guitarist for which becomes Nina Person's husband in this hiatus period. But Jason, what we've reached the moment. <laughs> oh, sorry. Finally, we are uh at the present no we're at the present for the purposes of this podcast which is um long gone before daylight and the song for what it's worth the present the present the present 17 years ago (laughs) (laughs) the cardigans have been on hiatus i think a lot of the the, the pop fervor for them has died down by this point. Mm. And it's at this point that the band feels comfortable kind of reconvening. Nina person describes it in an interview with the independent as kind of like a therapeutic session where they get, they got together to kind of talk about like what the future of the band would be and how they would approach it. 
And the result of this is the album uh, 2003's Long Gone Before Daylight. The song, uh, this album didn't get released in the United States till 2004. And it's interesting because Peter Svensson, who was the songwriter for most of the Cardigan songs, talked about how previously to this, their practice had really been that he would be working with a producer and they would be, you know, noodling and fine tuning all these songs. Their bassist, he was the one that wrote all the lyrics. And so when they got into the studio with the rest of the band, it was like, these are our songs. We're going to sing them. And in contrast to that, when they put together Long Gone Before Daylight, it was much more of a collaborative experience. And they worked together in the studio to craft this music together. And as a result, like Nina Pearson actually wrote the lyrics for this particular album. And the album itself represents a huge musical shift, I think, for them. You know, they had already been moving away from the kind of too cute pop music that they were making in the mid-90s with, you know, electronic references and electronic instrumentation. When they reemerge with Long Gone Before Daylight, it's a distinctly like, I don't know, reviews referred to it as having country influences, which I guess I kind of hear, but it's also kind of folksy to me. It's a little bit more lush in its instrumentation Mm. than I think they'd been doing previously. And for lack of a better word, it sounds more grown up. It sounds to me like a grown up version of the Cardigans, which to me was actually like, to me, it was kind of a smart move in that I guess people my age that were maybe teenagers when they debuted were now like the NPR listeners Mm. of the mid 2000s. And that's where I first heard this this album getting play was on NPR. Yeah, I was listening to this for what it's worth. It's it's like kind of countryish, right? Am I wrong? Like that? There's something. Well, about I mean, it that, that feels... and that's the characterization that most of the critics gave it. I don't know that I necessarily. I mean, maybe I'm not familiar. I hear like a slide like... guitar or a steel guitar or something in there. Mm. And harmonic, there's a harmonica in it. Uh-huh. I guess, you know what it is? You know what it is to me is like my perception of country music as a country music outsider is so influenced by like the the country music that we grew up with in the 80s and early 90s. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like country music, it's evolved throughout time. Like for a while, there was like this very, there was like a slickness to country music in the 80s and 90s. And then I feel like in the 2000s, people were starting to... um harken back to like old fashioned country music that Uh was a little more organic and a little more, a little less heavily produced. I Mm -hmm. just think of like, um, I don't know, like eighties. Who was it? Like, like uh, Kenny Rogers. See, I don't even, I don't even know country music. I can't talk about country music. So if you say this is a country song, this is a country well, song. Well, no, I'm just saying it feels country influence. I mean, I didn't read the critics about this album, but there's something about it that just feels referential. Or maybe not just country, but more folksy. Like yeah. a folkiness. Yeah. That's to me, that's to me what it is. It's more of a folk. But the instrumentation folk- reminds but, like, me yeah, of Yeah, like country. now that you now that you now that you mention it, like the whole like slide guitar thing. Uh-huh. All that it, it it has a new sound for them, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's kind of what I don't know. It's it's kind of what gets me about this song is that you know it starts out with just like a single guitar playing, 
and then the keyboard comes in and then she kind of counts them in and just there's something about the build of that momentum that for me hooked me on this song like right away and in true cardigans fashion i think what maintains true to form for them is that lyrically this song touches upon this like this real small intimate sadness within a relationship and in such a really like a, a beautiful way to me you know yeah like it, it it takes a while to like listen to this song and be like oh like what is she talking about because the the, the kind of refrain in the chorus is for what it's worth i love you and what is worse i really do <laughs> because i think lyrically what she's talking about or my interpretation of what she's talking about is you know she's in this relationship and she has accidentally told him that she loves him Hmm. and that has fractured them in some way it's like saying it when you're not supposed to yeah she has slipped up and told her boyfriend that she loves him and she's realizing it's a mistake and she's trying to reassure him like i'll do whatever to make this right it was a big mistake that I said these, this four letter word, you know, basically. Yeah. And there's just something that again, like when paired with her voice, the mournfulness, but also like the sweetness of her voice always just gets me. And this, this is one of those songs that like, if I'm in the right headspace, like I'll, 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 I'll weep a little. <laughs> wow. I mean, <laughs> the look on your face is just like, uh, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. Like I, so I did talk about how in, in our in an episode where we talked about um, our end of the year, our wrapped sort of things, I talked about Maggie Rogers and how like there's nothing necessarily about one of the songs that she sang on SNL, Falling Water, that would make you cry. But there was something about the performance that did for mm-hmm. me. And I, I feel like for the, that's an outlier for me because like if I'm listening to this song for what it's worth, the music is... Yes, it's sad and it's intimate, but like it's not, it's, well, the music itself isn't sad. The lyrics are sad. And so I think that keeps me from really marinating in the sadness uh. of it. Like, I, I, I don't think that I would be moved to tears by it because oh, the okay. song, because it's done in a different way. You know, maybe if she'd uh. ended up singing it with a piano. See, and it's funny because to me, it's it's almost the exact opposite where like the sadness of the song is amplified by how cheery, cheery the song sounds. And I think that's always... I get that. I get that. That's always been the appeal of their songs to me is like these kind of sad, fucked up messages within these happy, happy songs. But I guess to me, it harkens to that like kind of like smile through the pain yeah 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 i was just gonna say there's you maybe do you i mean not that you identify with that but like <laughs> I oh wanna, i do i don't want to put words in your mouth but if i tears if in I, your I, eyes if i actually smiled i would smile through the pain <laughs> barry are you in pain right now because you're smiling very broadly <laughs> um <laughs> but uh no i i i i think yes yeah, I, I guess what I was saying was like maybe maybe I'm 
it requires the more for me it's like the more obvious sadness is what moves mm-hmm. me to that and it's it's I, I get the i get i get what you're saying um yeah it doesn't necessarily elicit that physical reaction from me but i enjoy yeah. it i do enjoy it's, it it's it's a fine I, I i would also go further to say it's a fine balance because i can also feel what you're saying about like you know an emotional performance of an emotional song that like the two line up with each other i guess the interesting pitfall in my mind is that if you're not a spectacular performer it's incredibly easy to seem disingenuous about an emotional performance yeah yeah which I think is to your point about like those rare moments when an emotional performance can make you feel something is because the vast majority of the time when someone's singing like a maudlin torch song, the majority of the time I feel like this person just wants you to hear their voice. This person is just trying to show you how good their voice is. And only occasionally does an artist show you how good their voice is, but also show you that they're feeling what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and those are the true greats, right? Like, um, yeah, no, totally. We we were watching TV one night, and it was one of the because before, not before, but I had an antenna, like a over air (laughs) antenna. It was still connected to my TV. You could still get TV over the air. TV over the air, (laughs) and there was this channel. It was like one of the digital channels that was like off channel five. Okay, and in the evenings they would play like just classic shows and they played they were running old episodes of the judy garland show oh geez and so i just happened to i just happened to come across it while i was like what's on these other channels and i'd never really watched that show and i mean i i do love judy garland but i came to her late and most of it was because i was like i don't want to be a cliche um you know the old queen who likes judy garland uh, you know and you weren't an old queen yet. I wasn't an old queen, but but you know what I'm saying. Like there's that there's that whole Judy Barbara Liza. Like there's that yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so we're watching this. Adam was with me, and you know Judy, you know she's kind of you know the way she talks is just she's very personable, but like she's kind of rambly and kind of all over the place. And then she'll just go into it was the methamphetamines <laughs> and the and balanced by the booze. And you know this is like later Judy too, so you never knew what you're gonna get. And mm-hmm. She she does this thing where she'll on her show where she kind of walks out and there's like an old trunk. It's like okay. just standing on its end. And she's in the middle of the stage. It's just lit by um those stage lights to define the 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 edges. And all the lights go down and she just kind of like puts one, she like props her chin on her on her on her on her on her wrist. She's like leaning her elbow on the trunk and she just goes into this song. And it's it's about a little house. And she's talking about like this little house that we had. But the man's now gone and all she has left is like this little house. And it's just a reminder of like that he left her. And she goes from being like kind of drunk Judy to just like doing this song like sort of seamlessly. And both of us, both Adam and I at the end are just crying. And we're looking at you like, how did this happen? Like what the heck just happened? Like you old queen. But it's, but it's, you know, to your point about that, that there are very few instances where, the the performer doing the song can really just bring you on that journey in such in three minutes right two minutes however long yeah. it is and just like live in that song and just take you there and i think that's there's there's some distance that i think you know maybe you know that that i i feel in sometimes that i have to push through with songs like for what it's worth where i don't necessarily realize like i take it at face value 
face mm-hmm. value being the tone of the song, the music, the tone of the melody, uh, as that's what it's that's what it's doing. And so sometimes yeah. it takes someone to be like, oh no, this is that song. <laughs> and I would say like vocally, where Nina Pearson excels at having her sweet voice, it's also disconnected. Yeah, and I think that that's always been a part of what they're leaning into with their music. I think. Okay. You know, that was like almost like an artistic choice. Like an, of, like a sort of remove. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know why, like stuff like that can still affect me. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying it's weird. I'm just saying like, I don't have that reaction. It, it so doesn't, I think it doesn't, interesting. it doesn't bore a hole deep into your, your soul. I think it can, if I know that that's what's happening. Okay. Right. Okay. And like, then we watch the movie, the biopic. That's fair. You know, fair. you know, I need to have that narrative about it, but I don't yeah. automatically assume I it mean, doesn't hit me. None, like of, that. none of this is helped by the, their television appearances, which just make it seem like they're actually just kind of very reserved, disconnected people yeah. Yeah. In, to the media. Um, so this album, love it, love it from front to back. I think it's like, to me, their best album. Hmm. This album also got airplay here. I didn't realize this song was never a single because I feel like this is the song I heard the most played on NPR, which is the first song on the album called Communication. Also also a beautiful song, also lyrically beautiful. Um, what's the lyric in that that always gets to me? She's like, um, that's not an invitation. That's all I get. If this is communication, I'll disconnect. Because <laughs> huh. it's, it's it, it, you know... Mm-hmm. it's this whole song about like wanting to waiting for a lover to kind of, you know, communicate openly yeah. with yeah. you before you decide like, this isn't worth it. I'm just gonna, gonna walk away. Um, This song, I didn't know this until I was researching for this episode. This song recently had a, a little mini resurgence because Miley Cyrus covered this song in one of her MTV unplugged from her backyard episodes. Like she's been doing a yeah, lot yeah. of like little, little sessions from her backyard with a, with a full band for MTV unplugged. And this is one of the songs that she actually covered recently or back in the day. Cause I remember Within she did the Jolene past month. Oh, <laughs> I wow. I didn't really, it was, was like October. I think it was October or November. But oh, that makes her sense. Version, she just came out with her album. version is terrible. Her, oh. her vocal delivery of this song is terrible. And I think it is that thing for me that actually, Nina Pearson's the way she's like disassociated a little bit works a lot more for me than Miley Cyrus trying to emote the song and failing. Like if you're going to emote this song a hundred percent, it has to be like the right uh, feeling. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. Miley Cyrus, does you not don't like it. A, you don't like the obvious. You want more of the hurt, the, the sort of guarded, the hurt. guarded. Cause I'm listening yeah, to the song like, now. This is, and this is my that. internal feeling. If you're going to externalize those feelings, it has to be, perfect uh-huh and i think that that is an a much rarer and much more difficult thing to do that's fair miley cyrus just hits the peak of it and i'm like it's a pretty song delete yeah um i didn't re- i like this I, I like this a lot oh, actually you're listening to the my, my, my no 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 version. i'm listening to the oh. cra- uh, cranberries oh god i'm oh, listening no. to the cardigans version <laughs> the oh, real no. reason the cardigans flopped is because no one could tell them apart from the cranberries <laughs> Just me. <laughs> um, so that's what happened with this album. The Cardigans released one more album after this. 
that, you know, again was, I don't think they had expectations that anything they did after Gran Turismo was going to be a huge hit. I don't think that they, cause they were, I don't think they were assigned to a major label anymore in the United States and they were just kind of releasing music as it, as it came up for them. Um, so I don't think that the expectations were necessarily there for a huge radio hit. Um, but you know, I still think it's kind of um, unfortunate that they didn't get those opportunities to kind of break through with this music later on in their career. Mm. Since the release of their last album in 2005, the band has gone on somewhat of a permanent recording hiatus. They have reunited occasionally for tours, mm-hmm. minus the lead guitarist slash the guy that wrote all the songs for the, the, the Cardigans, Peter Svensson, because... And this is something that you alluded to earlier is that Peter Svensson has moved on to quite the pop songwriting career. And uh-huh. I didn't know this until like last night I was just clicking around Wikipedia and I was like, Oh, this guy's still around. He's still a snack. I know it's the, it's the, the, those Viking eyes. Yeah. They Wait, just, I think it's Vikings like those, those like piercing, slightly upturned Nordic eyes. They don't. And the cheekbones, the cheekbones really hold your eyeballs yeah. up as you age. He's very um, Viggo Mortensen right now. Viggo Mortensen? Of. Right. You know, from, from. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, right? no. I, yeah. I, I, I didn't know if I heard you correctly. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like that's, that's a similar kind of look, right? Where it's like the pierce, it's those eyes. There's something about those, yeah. the way the eyes are. There's something about the structure of your face that, you know, your skull is going to hold up your flesh very well into your forties. <laughs> Just like mine. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're Asian, so we're going to be producing collagen for a few more years than our Caucasian counterparts. Mm-hmm. But then one day speaking. we're just going to wake up. And but then, poof. but then once, co- once collagen production stops, we're going to be relying upon our eyeballs and, um, our skulls to hold up the flesh on our face. Um, <laughs> Peter Svensson has accomplished all of that and more because he has written and produced some like amazing pop songs in recent times, yeah. including some songs that we've talked about here. We talked about the song I'm ready ah. uh, by Sam Smith featuring Demi Lovato. Mm-hmm. You've talked about your love of Ariana Grande. He wrote uh breathe in. One uh-huh. of my favorite. Ariana I love Grande that song. song. Yes, he wrote the song "Bloom" by Troy Sivan. Troy Sivan, also one of my favorite songs by Troy Sivan. He wrote stuff for the weekend. He uh, has written stuff for. Oh, he wrote "Me Too" by Megan Trainer. Uh, wait, wait for it. Twenty fifteen wrote "I Really Like You" for Carly Rae Jepsen. I mean, iconic. That this is guy a good song. is. This guy is invading my heart. With his eyes and with his music, it, 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 you know, it's just interesting to see in this episode where I'm trying to connect the dots between alternative music and my love of pop music in the 2000s to see that like someone who started the early 90s as a heavy metal guitarist has emerged into the 2010s as like a solid pop songwriter. I mean, Barry, if you want to go even further, <laughs> someone who actually kicked off your transformation into a pop princess <laughs> with with one of the 90s like most or popular indie rock bands uh is now producing and writing some of your favorite pop songs 
like the biggest, the world's biggest pop songs. I think that's just crazy. Yeah. He he's responsible for you. It's it's funny because I was actually after I made this discovery, a discovery like clicking on Wikipedia is is, is like, I'm like Christopher Columbus discovering information. <laughs> in in that article or in an article interviewing Nina Pearson recently, they mentioned that to her that they were like, oh, like what what do you think about Peter Svensson? Like you know he's writing all of these huge pop songs, and you know do you see the connection to the music that you guys were making as the Cardigans? And she had actually said like sometimes she'll hear one of these songs that he wrote come on and she kind of half expects her voice to be in the song because she's huh. like oh this is one of our songs isn't it like because she can recognize That's his kind of thumbprint on this music and kind of to a point you're making earlier about the songs that they were writing and producing on Gran Turismo with my favorite game or any of that electro inspired indie pop rock they were making then it's almost like that that to me is very much the basis for the sound of pop music today. Mm. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's bringing up all of these like indie pop sounds, these trip hop sounds back from the late nineties and revisiting them, modernizing them and then recontextualizing them with these like young pop stars mm-hmm. to be like this, this is how cool this could have been as pop music back then. Mm. But it's almost like it needed all of that. To be able to pull, you know. Yeah, and then we need time to like feel that nostalgia, maybe yeah, I guess yeah. for that sound. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Anyway, that was my big finding for this week. I mean, a true twist. I know. I love it it. It, it. it was. It was something that like suddenly made a lot of the music that I like now make a lot more sense to me. It's like because mm. I'm not like a I'm not like a classically trained musician or someone with a musical background that I can identify exactly what's happening with music at particular points in time, right? Uh-huh. I'm not looking at these songs through the, the lens of like, oh, like Loveful starts out with this chord and then in the chorus it goes to this chord or the key changes to this. You uh-huh. know, I'm not looking at it through that that I think a lot of like... Like a musicology um, lens. Yeah. Musicologist type of folks do look at it through that lens and they can di- they can break stuff down into its DNA to understand what's going on. And for you and I as like essentially like layman pop culture enthusiasts, all we have to rely on is like our own kind of emotional response to things. And then trying to digest, like, why is that? Like, what is, what is happening yeah, yeah. with the music that we're listening to? Yeah. To put it into context, we're like amateur yeah. archeologists who've just discovered a fossil on the beach. Yeah. Truly. I am Christopher Columbus. I just discovered America. <laughs> no one has ever been here before. No one ever knew that Peter Svensson wrote all these pop songs and that he was a member of the cardigans. Watch out um, other pop songs. You're about to get a disease. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. That's, I mean, you know, that's basically my spiel on the cardigans. I hope you give them a chance. I do. You know what? You have introduced me to this album, which I did not know existed and, you know, didn't know what to expect. But, you know, as I've been listening to some of this, I actually really enjoy it. And so I will give it a listen. I will add it to my rotation because, um, you know, how can you not, I mean, you know, again, talking about the context, how could I go back and be like, uh, I don't like this album when, when, the th- the other things that the band has produced, like to your point, like have influenced things that if I truly enjoy now. And I, that was that was the first thing while listening to this song, Communication, just being like, oh, this has the hallmarks of a lot of pop songs that I like right now. 
Yeah. You know, and so like it, not 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 necessarily digesting it in that way, but just being like, no, I, I will like this. You know, like I do like this. It has that Swedish DNA. Something about the Swedish DNA of high cheekbones, piercing eyes, pronounced brow ridge, and a <laughs> affinity for infectious pop tunes. And socialism. All that and more. ABBA, Ace of Bass, The Cardigans, Robin, and um, the Swedish chef from The Muppets. Volvos. Oh, yeah. Volvos. I, think, I thought you said something else. No. No, this is a, this is a family-friendly <laughs> podcast. Although there's nothing to be ashamed of talking about anatomy. Flipping the explicit language switch <laughs> now. <laughs> All right. Anyway. All right. I think that's all we've got for this week. Um, well, is it is it me? No, it's it me because I am going to give. Oh, because yeah, cause again, I've been talking all the time. Yeah, so just take it away, Jason. I know. Special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. Songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, um, although probably not the band version no. of that video. Um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, flopper. Uh, you know, they'll be posted to our website, flopperdemer.com. Remember to rate. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, so um, many more dozens of people can hear what we have to say. And check us out on social at flopperdemer on Instagram and Twitter, and at facebook.com/flopperdemer. And email us at flopperdemer at gmail.com. Do it. Many more dozens of listeners. That's very optimistic. Hey, look, I'm trying to set. <laughs> What is it? The smart goals? goals. Realistic goals. It's a smart, measurable, achievable, relevant, and trackable. Okay. Well, we can we can do all of that, except for maybe the reasonable part, but um... (laughs) and maybe the achievable part. (laughs) We can certainly track our lack of our lack of of success in this area. Yeah. All right. (sighs) Okay. We're done. All right. See you next time. Bye.